right. Good morning, everybody. Merry Christmas. I'm so glad to see you today. Do you have your Bible with you? Good. Isaiah chapter 9 is where you need to turn. Isaiah chapter 9. That's where we're going to start today. Um, and that's where we're going to get to another point, at another point today. And we're going to kind of, as the last few weeks, be all over the place in between. Uh, I hope that you are still in the fight for Christmas joy in the midst of this messed up world. I don't want us to miss the celebration of the Incarnation, especially this week of all weeks. I have very little doubt that the enemy will be working overtime in the next few days to distract and discourage us. And I saw him at work even this morning as I laid in bed thinking about the day and kind of how things were going to go and making preparations for the day. Um, he reminded me of sins that have long been covered by the blood of Jesus. Sins that I hadn't thought about in years and years and years. And yet this morning, of all mornings, those things come to mind and the enemy accuses. As he does, he's an accuser. So we've got to fight for Christmas joy. We've got to fight for focus on the Lord Jesus Christ and the grace that has been shown to us through him. So fight for joy this Christmas. Remember, uh, we're taking a little break from our normal approach to preaching. Expositional preaching is the bread and butter of what we do around here. But we're having a short-term snack of topical preaching about Jesus as the long-awaited, far-superior prophet, priest, and king. I want to remind you about those three roles in the Old Testament, those three offices of the Old Testament, kind of an overview. I think there's one slide that has them all. When we talk about the prophet, we recognize he is the one who brings the word of God to the people of God. His is a revealing ministry. We talked about Jesus as the greatest prophet, and more than a prophet, the first week of Advent. Then we talked about the priest, and we see the priest in the Old Testament as the one who connects the people of God with the presence of God through sacrifice, always through sacrifice. He has a reconciling ministry. And today we're going to talk about the king, how he brings the rule of God over the people of God, how he has a reigning ministry. And we're going to talk about Jesus as the king, and not just any king. He is the king of all the kings. And as we think about these things, I don't want us to miss the radical God-centeredness of all of this. When we think about prophets, priests, and kings, especially in the Old Testament, we want to be asking ourselves, what do the people actually need? Well, what they need is a word from the Lord. What they need is access to the presence of the Lord. What they need is the rule of the Lord over them. They don't ultimately need a prophet, a priest, or a king. What they need is God. And it is the prophets and the priests and kings in the Old Testament that bring the people into the presence of God, that bring the word of God to them. But what they need is God himself. The prophets, the priests, and the kings of old served to point people to the Lord. And as we talk about Jesus as the ultimate, the long-awaited prophet, priest, and king, we see him as the Lord himself. We have access to God directly because of Jesus Christ. Well, last week we talked about Jesus as the long-awaited and far superior priest who brings us into the presence of God by his once-for-all sacrifice of himself. I told you that Jesus is the better priest of a better covenant with a better sacrifice. And we looked especially at Hebrews chapter 10. And in verse 11, we read this. Every priest stands. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. We talked about how there was no chair in the tabernacle. There was no chair in the temple. But Jesus offered his one sacrifice and sat down on the throne next to the Father. 
And because of his great work as our great high priest, we can and we must draw near to God. That's what we read later on in Hebrews chapter 10. Through Jesus, we can be clean on the inside and the outside. Jesus has made a way for us to have access to the Father. When Jesus died, the veil of the temple was torn from the top to the bottom. He has made a way, and he is the only way. The only way we can have access to the Father is through Jesus the Son. And we receive this access, this salvation, this reconciliation, this justification. We receive it as a gift of grace by faith. So I invited you and I will continue to invite you to repent of your sins and trust in Jesus Christ and draw near. Draw near to God through him. We also read that we should hold fast. We should hold fast because Jesus is it. He's the one. There is no one else we can look to. There is no other sacrifice. There is no better priest. There is no better covenant. Don't turn away from Jesus. There is salvation in no one else. And finally, said that we must help each other. Consider how you can stimulate one another to love and good deeds is what the author of Hebrews says. There's a corporate element of all of this. We're not lone rangers in our walk with Christ. How are you helping others walk with Jesus? That was the question I left you with last week. Like not just are you walking faithfully with Jesus, but how are you helping anyone else walk faithfully with Jesus? It's part of what we're called to do as his people. Well, this week we will consider Jesus as the long-awaited and far superior king. The king of all kings, in fact. And we're going to see this big time in Revelation when we come back to that study in a couple of weeks. So stay tuned for that. Stay tuned for this, this picture in Revelation of all of these lesser powers, all of these lesser forces, and then Jesus triumphant over all of them. All of these kings with real power, with real strength, and Jesus reigning and ruling over them, having victory over all of them. Jesus is the king of kings. But before we get to that, let's start in the Old Testament like we have over the last several weeks with the promise of a king to come in Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9, I want to read verses 1 through 7 with you, then we'll pray and we'll dive in. Isaiah chapter 9, this is part of what our friend Matt from Central Asia read to you in Kurdish uh, earlier. Uh, it says, But there was no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Verse 2, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning, fuel for the fire. For a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. And the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for sending Jesus. And we pray that you will help us in these moments today, not only to celebrate the miracle of Christmas, 
to celebrate God made flesh to dwell among us, to celebrate the incarnation. But we pray that you will also help us to recognize the majesty of Jesus as King and help us to gladly submit to his rule and reign, not just in our lives, but over all of creation. Father, we long for the day that Jesus' reign is plain to see, and no one can doubt or deny it. And until that day comes, teach us to find our primary identity as citizens of his kingdom, and not the kingdoms of this world. We pray all of these things in the name of King Jesus. Amen. Well, when we think about Old Testament kings, our thoughts probably go immediately to Saul, David, or Solomon. Or maybe our thoughts go to the long list of kings in Israel and Judah. Or maybe even your thoughts go to the books of First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles. But like we have seen with the prophets and the priests of the Old Testament, I want to argue that the rule over God's people actually predates by a great margin, the anointing of Saul as king over Israel. The rule of God over his people predates the appointment of Saul as king over Israel. Well, you might be saying, sure, sure, of course. There were judges before there were kings, and that's true. But I want us to press back even further than that with this question. Who was the first king over God's people? Who was the first king over God's people? Well, you might want to say Adam if you were tracking along on the first week when we talked about the prophets. But I would argue that the first king over God's people is God himself. He is the original king over his people. He ruled them directly. And we see this most clearly in the garden before the fall as Adam and Eve walk with God in the cool of the day. But we see it in other places too. And I make this point for a couple of reasons. First... I want to show you that every earthly king is a step down, a step down from the ideal scenario. Even the good kings are mere men, and we want to see that. Or to say it a different way, the appointment of an earthly king, a man king, was a rejection of the Lord's direct rule over his people. It's one reason why I want to talk about this. And the second reason is this. I want to show you that Jesus, as king, is a restoration of the direct rule of God over his people. The appointment of a man king is a step down. Jesus as king is a step of restoration of God's direct rule over his people. That is the ideal scenario, and that will be the case for all of eternity. God will directly rule over his people. So let's explore for a minute this idea that every earthly king is a step down from the ideal scenario Even the good kings are mere men. Even the good kings are weak and broken and fallen. Say it a different way as I did a minute ago. The appointment of an earthly man king was a rejection of the Lord's direct rule over his people. And we see this very clearly in 1 Samuel chapter 8. So I want you to turn there. 1 Samuel chapter 8. It's not going to be on the screen because it's super long. It's a really long text, but it's important. And it may be a text that you're not familiar with. It may be a text that might reorient your thinking about earthly kings, uh, even, even about David as the uh, kind of ideal man king. We're going to see that as the people cried out to God for a king, God tells them it's not a good thing for you to have a king like that. And for you to want a man king is to reject me as your king. So 1 Samuel chapter 8, and listen, I know there are certain books of the Bible that are sometimes hard to find. 
and we're in a hurry, do not ever be afraid to use the table of contents. Like, I would much rather you use the table of contents to get to 1 Samuel chapter 8 than to, like, fake it and not get to, not get to look uh, at God's word with us. 1 Samuel chapter 8, I'm going to start reading in verse 4. It says, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel. Samuel was the priest at the time at Ramah. And they said to him, Behold, you have grown old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the matter was displeasing in the sight of Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people regarding all that they say to you, because they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Catch that. They have rejected me from being king over them. Like all the deeds which they have done since the day I brought them up from Egypt, even to this day, in that they have abandoned me and served other gods, so they are willing, so they are doing to you as well. Now listen. Listen to their voice. However, you shall warn them strongly and tell them of the practice of the king who will reign over them. So Samuel spoke all the words of the Lord to the people who asked him for a king. So he's functioning like a prophet there. He gives them the word of the Lord. And he said, this will be the practice of the king who who will reign over you. He will take your sons and put them in his chariots for himself and among his horsemen. And they will run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to do his plowing and to gather his harvest and to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will also take your daughters and use them as perfumers, cooks, and bakers. He will take the best of your fields, your vineyards, and your olive groves and give them to his servants. And he will take a tenth of your seed and your vineyards and give it to his high officials and his servants. He will also take your male servants and your female servants and your best young men and your donkeys and use them for his work. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his servants. Then you will cry out on that day because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you on that day. Yet the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel and they said, no. But there shall be a king over us, listen to verse 20, so that we also may be like all the nations. Was not God's design for his people from the beginning to not be like all the nations? And yet they are clearly articulating, no, our desire is to be just like them. We want a king. The Lord is their king. They want a man king. It's a step down. So that we will be, this is verse 20, so that we will also be like all the nations and our king will judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. It's the Lord who went before them and fought their battles, right? Verse 21, now after Samuel heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the Lord's hearing. And the Lord said to Samuel, listen to their voice and appoint a king for them. So Samuel said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. I hope that you will see here that God himself says that the appointment of an earthly man king is a rejection of his direct rule over his people. You might be thinking about this and thinking, yeah, 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 I get it, I get it, Chris, but that's Saul. That's a reference to Saul. Saul was the first appointed king of Israel. We all know that Saul was bad. But David, David was the man. Let's not, let's not talk about Saul being a bad king. Let's talk about David being a great king. Anthony Carter goes down this road when he says, in the Old Testament, the monarchy was established for the peace, prosperity, and welfare of the nation. The prototype king was David. No king was ever as beloved as he was. 
He was God's vice regent among the people. Remember that, vice regent among the people. With David on the throne, the nation of Israel could say, all is well. Really? With David on the throne, the people of God could say, all is well? Well, I agree that as far as the Israeli monarchy goes, David was the pinnacle. But let's remember that David was far from perfect, far from ideal. And all was not always well when he was in charge. In in fact, let's not forget that there were many battles under David's leadership. And while Israel did enjoy many victories, those victories were not without bloodshed, death, and loss. We see this particular matter as an issue, even with the Lord, as David seeks to build the temple. There's a scene in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1-7, through 7, where David articulates his desire to build a house for the Lord. He basically says, we've got, we've got houses, we are established in the land, but Lord, you still dwell in the tent, the tabernacle. Let me build a house for you. It seems like a noble and honorable thing that David wants to do. But if you read on in 1 Chronicles chapter 22, when the day comes to actually do this, the Lord says, David, you're not qualified. You're not qualified to build a house for me. Look what it says in chapter 22 of 1 Chronicles verse 6. Then he called for his son Solomon, David's son Solomon, and commanded him to build a house for the Lord God of Israel. David said to Solomon, my son, I had intended to build a house for the name of the Lord my God, but the word of the Lord came to me saying, You have shed much blood and have waged great wars. You shall not build a house to my name because you have shed so much blood on earth before me. Behold, a son will be born to you who shall be a man of rest, and I will give him rest from all of his enemies on every side, for his name will be Solomon, and I will give peace and quiet to Israel in his days. He shall build a house for my name, and he shall be my son, and I will be his father, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom over Israel forever." Now, my son, the Lord be with you that you may be successful and build the house of the Lord your God just as he had spoken concerning you. So even though we, want, we see David as the pinnacle of the Jewish monarchy, we see that even he was weak and frail. All was not always well under David. And if we're going to talk about David's weakness and frailty, we also cannot forget that night up on his roof when he lusted after his neighbor's wife. That night that he took her and slept with her and conceived a child. And then tried to manipulate her husband. And when that didn't work, he murdered him. David, the great king over Israel. An adulterer and a murderer. This David, the pinnacle of the monarchy. When we read about him, we've got to say, isn't there someone better? Isn't there a better king? In fact, all throughout David's reign, at the high point of the kingdom, there are repeated promises of a greater king to come. Maybe the greatest example of this comes from David himself. David himself longing for and expecting a greater king to come. Look at his words in Psalm 110. This is David pinning this. David at the height of the monarchy thinking about a greater king even than himself who would come. Psalm 110, which is used by a number of New Testament authors as references to Jesus. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. We saw that last week. The Lord will stretch out your strong scepter from Zion saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. 
Your people will volunteer freely on the day of your power in holy splendor from the womb of the dawn. Your youth are to you as the dew. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand and he will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. So even David, the height of the monarchy, is talking about a greater king to come. There was always this forward-looking expectation that there would be a greater king. And it's not just during David's reign that we see this. It's all throughout the prophets. All throughout the prophets, we look and we see them saying, is there a greater king to come? Is there someone better? Is there someone who will reign over uh, God's people forever and ever? Isaiah chapter 9 is one of the texts that we see. Where we see that, I read it at the beginning. Look with me at verses 6 and 7. A child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. And the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace, There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. So even in Old Testament days of kings, is what I want you to see, there was a look ahead for a greater king to come. And friends, I want to tell you that Jesus is the long-awaited, far superior king the long-awaited, far superior king, and we celebrate the birth of this king at Christmas time. In fact, that's the language that's used if you've been to small group Bible study this week. Luke chapter 1, verse 26 through 38, turn there. Luke chapter 1, it's, it's too long really to, uh, to put on the screen, but you're familiar with it. Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 26, uses the kingly language from the Old Testament to describe the birth of Jesus. Luke chapter 1, verse 26 says, Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the descendants of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and was pondering what kind of greeting this was. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. For you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and give birth to a son, and you shall call him Jesus. Verse 32 says, He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end. You catch that? The angel says, This is the one. This is the one the prophets were talking about. This is the one who will reign forever and ever. He's in your womb. He will be in your womb. You will give birth to this one. But Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. For that reason, also the Holy Child will be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth herself has conceived a son in her old age. And she who was called infertile is now in her sixth month. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, the Lord's bondservant. May it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Jesus is the long-awaited, far superior king. And we celebrate the birth of this king at Christmas time. And it seems in the midst of the Christmas story 
that it is these magi, these wise men from the east, who are the ones who get that most clearly. They seem to be the ones who understand the king, kingly role of Jesus at his birth. So flip over to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. And we'll read about these magi and what they say about the baby. Matthew chapter 2. Start reading with me in verse 1. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, in, the day, in, in Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? These guys from the outside say, The, the king has been born. Where, where is he? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet, And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go, search carefully for the child. And when you have found him, report to me so that I too may come and worship him. After hearing the king, they went on their way and the star which they had seen in the east, went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, the gifts that you would give to a king. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. I want us to see that even from the very beginning, even from his very birth, we see Jesus clearly as the long-awaited, far superior king. We celebrate the birth of a king at Christmas time. Make no mistake, the Magi, the wise men, were right. And make no mistake, Jesus is no vice-regent. Remember that guy referred to David as vice-regent of the Lord? Jesus is no vice-regent like David. He's no weak, broken, fallen stand-in. Jesus is the high king of heaven. Jesus is God himself ruling and reigning over all things forever and ever. The coming of Jesus, the birth of this king, is a restoration of God's direct rule over his people. He's not a king like David. He is God, the king over his own people. And in this we rejoice. In the birth of this king we rejoice, we celebrate, we sing about the birth of the king. And in the birth of this king we find comfort and we find hope. In, in a world that is spinning out of control, we find solace in the truth that Jesus rules over all things. That Jesus is God and rules as God over all things. But we know that he was not embraced as a king. In his earthly ministry, we, we've, got these, we've got these magi that show up from far away and they recognize him as king. And it seems like no one else recognizes him as king. He was not embraced as king because he was not the kind of king the people were looking for. Jesus was not the kind of king the Jewish people were looking for. They were looking for a king 
who would save them from Rome. They had a worldly wish for a king who would save them from Rome. But Jesus had a heavenly mission to save them from their sins. Because that's the main problem. It's the main problem that every person on the planet has. It's not that we are oppressed. It's not that we are poor. It's not that we are sick. The main problem that every man, woman, and boy, and girl on the planet has is that they are sinful, and God is holy. And Jesus came not to deliver people from Roman oppression. He came to deliver them from their sins. That's why the angel tells Joseph, name him Jesus. He will save his people from their sins. That's what he came to do. We, apart from Christ, are at odds with a holy God. And we deserve only his wrath for all of eternity. Jesus came with a heavenly mission to save people from their sins. And he would accomplish this mission, not by might and force, but by death and resurrection. Jesus would accomplish his mission as king to save people from sins, not on a tall horse with a sword in his fist. He would do it through humiliation, through suffering and death. The Bible teaches us that the most important message is that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Just think about that for a minute. The king died for us. The king who had no sin of his own, unlike David, unlike Solomon, unlike every other king listed, this king had no sin of his own and did not deserve to die. But this king stepped in our place and took our sin as if it was his own. And he died for our sins, according to the scriptures. And they buried him. And on the third day, he was raised, according to the scriptures. Listen, friends. In his resurrection, Jesus conquered the great enemy that is death. That's what kings do, right? They conquer enemies. And Jesus conquered death by his power. And we are saved, we are forgiven, we are justified, we are reconciled, we are adopted into the family of God by grace, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Jesus came with a heavenly mission to save people from their sins, and he accomplished this mission through his death, burial, and resurrection. People missed that the first time. His people in particular, the Jewish people, missed that the first time. People missed him as the king the first time. But let's not forget that no one will miss him the second time. John Piper says, the king has come and the king is coming. He says, Jesus came the first time and he is coming again. The king over all kings, king of Israel, king of all the nations, king of nature and the universe. Until he comes again, there is a day of amnesty and forgiveness and patience. He still rides on a donkey and not yet a white war horse with a rod of iron. He is ready to save all who receive him as savior and treasure and king. Come to him now. Know him now. Receive him now and live your life with allegiance to him. Jesus is the king. The king of the everlasting kingdom. And therefore, our submission must be to him. That's application number one. Our submission must be to him. We must live 
as subjects of this high king. Just like if he is the prophet, we must listen to him. Just like if he is the priest, we must draw near to God through him. If he is the great king, we must submit to him. We must live as his subjects. In other words, he rules over us. We live according to his standards. We live according to his word. Because he is not just the king, he is our king. And therefore, we must submit to him. Our submission is to him. And also, our hope is in him. It is good news that I declare to you today that Jesus is the king. Because this world seems absolutely out of control. And the fact of Jesus' sovereign rule over all things and his eternal rule over all things brings me a ton of comfort right now. Like real-time comfort when I look around the world and I read the news and I even observe things in my own life that seem absolutely out of control, it helps me to know that Jesus is on the throne. It helps me to know that he is sovereign and he is good forever and ever. Our hope is in him. And it must be in him. <laughs> there, is, there is nothing else you can look to for that kind of hope, that kind of security, that kind of comfort. And we try to look to a whole lot of other things. I'm inviting you today to look to Jesus for your hope. And I also invite you to look to Jesus for your peace. He's the king. Our submission is to him. Our hope is in him. And our peace is in him. I told you a second ago, that he's the king, and one of the things that kings do is they destroy their enemies, right? A powerful king destroys his enemies, and he will destroy his enemies. And apart from Christ, in your sin, you are his enemy. You will be destroyed. The Bible teaches that we, in our sin, are at enmity with holy God. There is strife and separation and war between holy God and sinful men. That's terrible news for all of us. The good news is he likes to make his enemies his friends. He has made a way, holy God has made a way for his sinful enemies to be his friends through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I want to tell you today, friends, you don't have to be his enemy. You don't have to be at odds with him. He himself made a way for you to be reconciled, to become his friend, to become his child even. And so once again, I invite you to repent of your sins and trust in Jesus Christ and become a child of God by his grace. Repent and believe. Application number two today is that because Jesus is the king of the everlasting kingdom, then our citizenship in his kingdom must be our primary identity. Like if we are citizens of his kingdom by grace through faith in him, if we are his children, his subjects, then our identity as citizens in his kingdom must be our primary identity. Not, not to the neglect of our citizenship as Americans or whatever country we may live in. We don't neglect that entirely. But our citizenship in the kingdom of God must eclipse it. That must be primary. That must be the emphasis. That must be what we live for. We must be first and foremost citizens of Christ's kingdom. 
subjects of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I, I struggle with this right now. I think the church in America is struggling with this right now, like big time. Seeing our identity in Christ's kingdom as primary over our identity as American citizens. Don't hear me wrong here and say, I'm not proud to be American, I'm not glad to enjoy the freedoms that we have. All, all of that is true. Man, all of that is temporary as well. And I want to talk to you today about eternal kingdom. I want to talk to you about eternal citizenship. And I want to ask you this question. How do you determine which citizenship is prioritized in your life? Like, how do you make this assessment? How, how do I look at my own life and say, all right, which, which, which citizenship is primary to me? I think there are a number of things you can look at to help determine that. One would be where you spend your money. And I'm, gonna, I'm just going to walk along with Jesus here and say that. Because he says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And if all of your treasure is wrapped up here, your heart's probably wrapped up here as well. But if your treasure is invested in his kingdom for eternity, it's probably a good reflection of where your heart is as well. How do I determine which citizenship is a priority in my life? One thing I can look at is my money. Am I consumed with materialism? Or with generosity? Am I pursuing above all things comfort or sacrifice? Maybe another way to determine which citizenship is prioritized is by your conversation. What do you talk about most? But I'm convinced that you, what you talk about most is what you love the most. What has been the focus of your conversations lately? Has it been the Lord, His kingdom, the gospel, the cross? the church, or has it been other things? I think you can also look at your lifestyle, your values, your obedience. A friend of mine this week said, you can live according to God's word in America, but it is really hard to live according to the American values in the kingdom of God. I thought that was pretty profound. Like, you, can't, you can live according to God's word in America. But it would be really hard to import all of the American values, cultural values, into the kingdom of God and live as a faithful citizen of his kingdom with all of those values. So how are you living? Maybe that's a question to ask as well. Maybe another question to help determine and assess which citizenship is prioritized is what stirs your heart. Like, what gets you going? Can you sing these kind of songs that we sing this morning and be unaffected? What stirs your heart? And maybe the most probing question for me this week, when I, when I think about this, what, what citizenship is prioritized in my life? The most probing question is, what are, what are my dreams for my children? What are my dreams for my children? Are my dreams the American dream for my kids, that they would be comfortable, prosperous, rich, that they would live in a better house than I live in, drive a better car than I drive, win more trophies than I won, 
Or, or is my dream for my children that they would be obedient to their king no matter the cost? Would I, this is the question that I want to wrestle with. Would I celebrate the same way if one of my children graduated from medical school and went right into some kind of practice? Would I celebrate the same way if they said, I got a backpack with three changes of clothes and I'm going to the nation's? And you might never hear from me again. You might never see me again. Because as soon as I land, they, they may kill me. That's where I'm going. I'm going with the message of hope. Would I celebrate that? Or would I be crushed that my dreams for my children were not fulfilled? I think that, that, that is helpful for me and super convicting to think about what my dreams for my kids reveal about my citizenship, my primary identity. I want to have kingdom dreams for my kids. So the first question I want you to wrestle with that I'm wrestling with is how do I determine which citizenship is prioritized in my life? And then the follow-up question is, what needs to change? Like how do I demonstrate that Christ's kingdom is priority for me? What are the changes that need to be made? And how will I implement them? With my money, my conversation, my lifestyle, my emotions, and my dreams for my kids? How can I live so that the world knows that Christ is my king? Let's stand together and pray. Lord Jesus, help us to live in submission to you as our great king. Help us not just to celebrate the incarnation, but to recognize the majesty of your kingly rule. And help us to gladly submit to it, not just in our individual lives, but over all of creation. Help us, teach us to find our primary identity as citizens of your kingdom and not the kingdoms of this world. Because we know that your kingdom is eternal. Help us, we pray, by your grace in Christ's name.